Thank you, worship team, for leading us so well in worship this morning. Darla screams out to stop again. Which, Continue. Yeah. Or unless you want to stay and learn about the return of Elijah. Pretty cool. So, well, welcome this morning. Um, it's good to be back. Um, just a little heads up right at the beginning. We're back at part two of the final imperative and the final promise. And as I've been preparing and, and working on this, this sermon this week, I have to say that here's how I would describe it. It's information and explanation heavy and application and illustration light. Okay? So it's not absent. If application and illustration are not absent. But this is one of those sermons where unpacking the text is... Um, there's a lot of information, and it's, I think it's extremely interesting information. So hopefully my interest in the subject will rub off on you, and you will be extremely interested in it as well. So, but today we actually arrive at the end of Malachi in our study, and I can't help but feel a little sad to be finishing it up. Because this little book has been so much a part of my life over the past two years since I began preaching it. And having to study and, and teach this book has tied me to it, as if with a rope. Um, and, and though I've studied and taught other portions of Scripture during that time, I've never been far from Malachi in my thoughts. But today we will actually finish the book of prophecy. And the next time I preach, I'll move on to a new one, which will be in the New Testament. That's the epistle to the Colossians. So that'll come in, in weeks into the future. So last week we covered the first of these last three verses. 4-4. Uh, four, four which covered the final imperative, which is remember the law of Moses. And we talked about the significance of, of Malachi concluding his prophecy by pointing to the law and the prophets. Moses, the lawgiver, and Elijah, the preeminent among the prophets. And if you recall, we talked about how Malachi was concerned to point the people and the priests back to that genuine first edition of the law. The one that was given at Horeb. But today we move on to part two of these final verses and we discuss the final promise. And interestingly, I thought this was pretty cool, the first sermon I preached in Malachi, the first sermon I preached as I started this journey through that book was exactly two years ago, almost to the day. Today's September the 11th, a heavy day in America's history. That year, two years ago, it was September 13th, 2020. And it was interesting because I was on the exact two verses. I started Malachi with these last two verses. I didn't start at the beginning. I started at the end. And so I'm going to exposit these two verses again today. But during that first sermon, back in 2020, it was called The Healed Home. And I had some special emphases in that sermon that prevented me, due to time constraints, from sharing some of the more interesting aspects of the prophecy about Elijah. And one of those emphases was the similarities between Elijah and John the Baptist. That was a major one. Another major one in that sermon was the picture of the wrecked home, the unhealth of the home that characterized the culture and the times when Elijah comes back. Those were the emphases of that sermon. But in that sermon, I promised that if the Lord allowed it, I would eventually circle back and I used the word circle back because I went and listened to it. That was before Jen Psaki ever came on the scene, by the way, right? And so I'm actually doing the circling back um, to these verses. And I'm going to unpack some of those details that I didn't include in the first message 
So that's what I'm here doing today, seeking to fulfill that two-year-old promise. And just as I did last week, for all of you note-takers, here is our path forward. There's going to be four questions that will guide us through the text. The first one's related to Malachi's audience. And that question is, how would Malachi's audience have heard these verses, and why did Malachi conclude with this mention of Elijah? The second question looks back further into the Old Testament. What was the significance of Elijah and in, in, in the prophet's impact on Israel's history? The third question looks forward to the New Testament. What was the significance of Elijah to those around the time of Christ? And finally, we'll, bear, we'll, go, we'll go even further forward to our day. What bearing does this figure of Elijah have on us today? So these are the four questions that are going to guide us through the text. So let's move on to the text, and I will read it, and then I will pray. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Father in heaven, we just sang... Thank you, O my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. Father, this morning as we delve into a passage of Scripture that is heavy on information, heavy on other Scriptures, Father, I pray that your Spirit would do a work in the preaching of your Word. And God, that you would do a a mighty work beyond anything that I could imagine or that we could imagine. Lord Jesus, that your spirit would move and change us and change our hearts so that they're fully yours. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first question, how would Malachi's audience have understood this little passage and why does Malachi here point them to Elijah? This past week, after I got done preaching the sermon, Doug Knoxville came up to me and he handed me this book. It's called The Battle for the American Mind. It's by Pete Hegseth. And in that book, it talks about how America and the West in general has lost a, cr- a crucial element that bound our culture together. And that element was what's, what he refers to in the book as the Western Christian paideia. And it's been replaced by a, a progressive paideia. And that word paideia has to do with, with pedagogy. How are our children shepherded? How are our children led? How is our culture transmitted to the next generation and remaining intact in the next generation? And one of the ways that Pete Hegseth describes this paideia is in this way. He says a pa- the paideia, the Western Christian paideia, created in us, or created in our culture, a vision a vision of what the good life was like. Well, in Malachi's day, they had a vision of what the good life was like. And that vision of a good life was all wrapped up in their land, the land of promise. It was wrapped up in their families, intact families, all wrapped up in worship of Yahweh, Worship of the Lord, centered in Jerusalem's temple. This was the vision of the good life in Malachi's day. This is, I think, what Malachi brings this issue up for. The reason he brings this up is because 
They were at risk of losing that vision of the good life. In fact, he warns them about that, what would happen to the land if they persisted. Malachi starts in verse 5. It says, Behold, I'm going to send. And this is not the first time that Malachi's audience would have heard this little phrase. The exact same phrase is in Malachi 3.1, and it starts just the same way when God through Malachi says, Behold, I'm going to send. And at that time, the one being sent was identified as my messenger. And this would have been that preparing messenger that we've talked about previously. This occurrence here in 4.5, where we're at today, identifies precisely who that preparing messenger mentioned in 3.1 is. It's Elijah. But this is not the only place that that little phrase, that exact phrase, occurs in the rest of the Old Testament. It's also in Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. And you remember last week we talked a lot about Exodus, the giving of the law at Horeb. So this little phrase appears in Exodus 23, 20. And just as in Malachi's prophecy, the messenger in that passage appears after the giving of the law. So both Malachi 3.1 and Malachi 4.5 are recognized as being an intentional reworking of Exodus 23.20. And in that passage, it says, See, I am sending an angel, or malach is the Hebrew word for angel or messenger. And if you remember, the name Malachi means messenger or angel. So in that passage, in Exodus 23, 20, he says, I am sending an angel. So the reference to that Exodus passage is intentional. Elijah will be another Malach to help God's people reach the place prepared for them. Just like that angel that God sent in Exodus, Elijah was going to be another one that would come to prepare them for the place to which they were going. So who's he going to send? He's going to send Elijah, the prophet. And we're going to look more in depth at this figure in just a few minutes. But for now, it's sufficient to say that Malachi's audience would have been very clear about who Malachi was referring. It was that most famous prophet in Israel's history. It was Elijah. The Septuagint, which is the the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, uh, translates this as Elijah the Tishbite. And that's how he's often referred to back in 1 and 2 Kings. But right now, what's important here in Malachi's prophecy is the timing of Elijah's being sent. That's what's important. And Elijah is sent before something, before the coming of something, the great and terrible day of the Lord. And that phrase, great and terrible, is also echoed elsewhere in Scripture. In Joel 2.31, the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome or great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And that great and terrible phrase combines elements of judgment and elements of blessing. Judgment for those who don't know God. Blessing for those who belong to Him. Just like Malachi, earlier in this chapter, in verse 2, that day brings the healing of the Son of Righteousness. But that day also brings the blazing furnace, setting the arrogant and evil doer ablaze. In 4 verse 1. In the day of the Lord... It's the same day that Malachi mentioned in 3, 1 and 2. That sudden coming of the purifying messenger to his temple. And that day that would be unendurable. And that day in which the appearing of the preparing messenger would be in in such a way that no one could stand before him. In 3.17, it's that day, that exact same day that God spares and prepares his own possession. 
In 4.1, it's that day that will burn like a furnace and it features the coming of Yahweh who sets the evil of blaze. So to the people of Malachi's day, the understanding of the day of the Lord was a, a two-sided day. It was a great day and a terrible day. A day in which God would be so moved with compassion for his children and so moved with rage for the enemies of him and his people that he steps in swiftly and he acts in history to deliver and to punish. That's the day of the Lord. And when we think about the, event, the events that surrounded the two figures that Malachi alludes to, they both represented powerful day of the Lord type moments. So follow me here. Think of Moses. Think of the Exodus. Think of the plagues. Think of the parting of the Red Sea. Think of the miracles in the desert and the giving of the law at Horeb. God stepped in and changed the course of that nation in a big way on that day. Think of Elijah on Mount Carmel. The contest, the fire from heaven, the judgment. God stepped in and he changed the course of the people in a big way. These were day of the Lord type events. Both of these figures, Moses and Elijah, played dominant roles in these events. And the events themselves foreshadow a greater and a culminating deliverance and judgment that both the Old and the New Testament describe as the day of the Lord. And Malachi tells the people that before that day comes, God is going to send Elijah. He's going to send Elijah to you so that you'll be ready for that day. Let's move on to the next verse. Verse 6. What will Elijah do when he comes? Well, he will restore. And that's the Hebrew word shuv. And Malachi has used this word seven times in his prophecy. The two most important instances are in 2.6, where he says, he's hearkening back to days gone by when the priests were actually good guys. Early on in Israel's history, he says, true instruction was in their mouth and uprightness, unrighteousness was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. Turned many back is that Hebrew word for restore. In chapter 3, verse 7, Malachi says, From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. God says to them, Return to me. Return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But they say, How shall we return? The people, God says, had, had turned aside from his statutes, and thus they needed to turn back or return or be restored. But the people, in their dismissive question, how shall we return, seemed oblivious to the fact that they had ever left in the first place. But what will Elijah restore when he comes? Well, it says he's going to restore the hearts, first of all. And A.E. Hill, in his commentary on this passage, says the word heart is the most important term in all of the vocabulary of the Old Testament anthropology. And it should be understood synthetically as the locus of human feelings, desire, reason, and volition. He goes on to say, the idea conveyed by the verse is one of intergenerational reconciliation. The practical outcomes of this repentance or turning of the parents and children to one another. He describes the ministry of the coming Elijah figure in terms of bridging the generation gap. Other commentators, Taylor and Clendenin, note the following, I think rightly so. Elijah's coming before the day of the Lord will result in a great revival of faith in Israel, expressed here as fathers and their children turning their hearts toward each other. 
And this is echoed earlier in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, Moses himself predicted a time after punishment for sin and rebellion that the people would return to him. In Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 3. And he says, he says, So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul. And this restoration back to their land had happened in Malachi's day. Remember, Malachi was preaching to the post-exilic crowd, people who had come after the Babylonian exile. They came back to the land. But the people did not have a heart relationship with God. The God who had brought them back, they could care very little for. They were simply going through the motions. It's kind of like it was in Jeremiah's day. In Jeremiah 3.10, he describes these people who put on a good face, but deep down... Deep down, they're far from the Lord. He says, in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception. It's just an outward going through the motions. It's just a putting on a good face. It's a deception. It's not true, heartfelt restoration. And like in the prophet Joel's prophecy, before, when he, before he warns of that impending day of the Lord in Joel's prophecy, we just read that in 2.31 of Joel. Look what he says earlier in that chapter. In chapter 2, verse 12 to 13, he says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. And with fasting and weeping and mourning. Here's what he says here. It's so good. Rend your heart, not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. According to Malachi, this true heart-level repentance would be what was going to occur when Elijah returns to them. And look at how important Elijah's ministry will be. Because if God doesn't send him to prepare the way and restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children of the fathers, then God was going to come and it wouldn't be pretty. Look what he says next. So that I will not come and smite. And that word smite means ruin or destroy or strike dead. Were it not for Elijah's future ministry, then smiting was going to happen. I don't want to be smited. Do you? I don't. The Jews of, that had come back after the exile to Jerusalem had already experienced a, a taste of this divine judgment in the form of some natural disasters and plagues that they had gone through. You can read about that in Haggai. But what Malachi predicts is a more absolute and final smiting. One that, one that will... Uh, from which they would never recover. And it's important. This is how important Elijah's future ministry will be for them. It will prevent this final smiting. It's going to prevent it. And the smiting, look where the smiting would fall. It would fall on the land. The land of promise. Remember that vision of the good life that I mentioned to you earlier? All wrapped up in the, in the Hebrew mind in the vision of the good life was being in this land. Their promised land. And we don't often appreciate the importance of the land to Israel, especially during Malachi's day. Recall he preached to the people who had been back in the land for about 100 years after the Babylonian captivity. And wrapped up in in the promise of God to the people of Israel was a promise of the land, that vision of the good life. Look back in Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua, the land which became theirs was repeatedly referred to as the good land 
a good land that I'm about to give you, and a land that would be theirs for generations to come, a gift from their good God who loved them and provided for them. But the people strayed over the generations, and Moses' warning of an exile came about. The prophet Jeremiah had prophesied the same thing, that as punishment for disobedience, the Lord would send the people of Israel and Judah as captives to a foreign land. And then after that, he predicted, after that 70 years of captivity, they would return to their homeland. And this is what happened. The people of Malachi's day were the recipients of this promise. But things were not as they expected. The prophets after the exile also had predicted good things for those who had returned to the land. In Zechariah 8.3, it says, Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion, and I'll dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. It didn't seem like God was with them to the people in Malachi's day. It didn't seem like what Zechariah had predicted was happening. Later in that same chapter in Zechariah, Behold, I'm going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I'll bring them back. And they will live in the midst of Jerusalem. That part had happened. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. They were not God's people in truth and righteousness. They did not treat God as if He were their true God, and He he was their standard of righteousness. Zechariah also said in that same chapter that for those people who returned, there would be peace for the seed that the vine will yield its fruit, the land will yield its produce, and the heavens will give their due. And I'll cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. Well, they had inherited the land, but they were in the midst of ecological difficulties. They weren't weren't producing much with their land. Their animals were sickly. There, There was a devourer in the field, if you recall earlier in Malachi's prophecy. The smiting of the land would be a curse, it says, if Elijah didn't eventually come. And the Hebrew word for curse here means a ban. A ban, or a, or a devoted thing. It's as if, it's as it's translated in, in, in back in the other parts of the Old Testament, in, in the Exodus and Deuteronomy, the Canaanite cities which were devoted things, devoted to destruction. It's the same word. It's also like Achan's family. Remember Achan um, who sinned in the wilderness after they had uh, defeated Jericho? Jericho, Achan's family was a devoted thing, a a thing devoted to destruction. What God was saying here is that if not for the future ministry of Elijah, the land of his people would be treated like the Canaanite cities of old, which were annihilated. And their future generations, like the family of Achan, utterly destroyed. This is how important Elijah's future ministry will be. But let's move on. That was, that was answering the question, how did Malachi's audience hear this? Let's move on now and ask the question, how did those in the New Testament view the importance of Elijah? I'm sorry, the, the, the people of the Old Testament view the importance of Elijah. Let's go back there to the Old Testament. And it may surprise you to know This surprised me when I found this out, that the only other appearance of Elijah in the Old Testament is in those narrative portions in 1 and 2 Kings and a little bit in 2 Chronicles where he shows up at all. He's nowhere else to be found. Now he features prominently there in in 1 and 2 Kings especially, but elsewhere he's nowhere. 
He's not there. Elijah doesn't have his own book of prophetic sermons like Isaiah did or Jeremiah did or Ezekiel or Malachi. He didn't have any of that. So how did Elijah come to be such an important figure for Israel? And I think the best answer to this question is found again back in Deuteronomy. Because in chapter 18, verse 15 of that book, Moses promised the people of Israel that the Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. So this prophet, according to Moses, would be someone like Moses, who would operate with a a special power from on high that would command the people's obedience and attention. This prophet would also be one in whose mouth God would put his own words so that he would speak them Speak all that God commanded for them. This was what Moses predicted. And most believed that that special prophet that Moses promised was Elijah. And it's not hard to see why that is. If you recall last week what we did, I asked you to go back in your mind's eye to Mount Horeb, to Mount Sinai, where the law of Moses was given. And I'll ask you once again right now to go back in your mind's eye to that seminal scene in Elijah's ministry onto another mountain, Mount Carmel this time, back in 1 Kings 18. Now right before this instance on Mount Carmel, three and a half years prior to this little scene, Elijah first appeared to King Ahab. And Ahab was in the middle of a Baal-worshipping building project on behalf of his Baal-worshipping wife Jezebel. And in that first appearance of Elijah, he prophesied that the rains would be shut up in the heavens and there would be no rain at all on Israel and that Israel would suffer a terrible drought. And here we are on that scene in Carmel, or on that, on that mountain in Carmel, three and a half years later, the land was still without rain, not a drop. But the worst plague, the worst plague that the people were suffering from was not the lack of rain. Rather, the worst plague they suffered from was a flood of Baal-worshipping priests and prophets that had spread throughout the land and they were terrorizing those who were faithful to God and His Word. And all of these operated at the behest of a wicked queen, Jezebel, who made the people cringe every time she opened her rotten mouth. So these were dark days and the land was ravaged by the time that Elijah reappeared to King Ahab. And recall in that scene that Elijah had instructed the king to call all of the people to Mount Carmel and all the prophets of Baal as well, so that they might all witness a contest between Baal and his 450 prophets and Yahweh and his lonesome prophet that day. Elijah stepped forward when that crowd had gathered in the midst of them there in that day, and he roared out, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. Elijah was saying that something's going to happen today. Something's going to happen that's going to make you decide. You cannot vacillate any longer. By the end of this day, you will declare your allegiance to one or the other. This is the day of decision. 
And when we remember the rest of that encounter, Elijah challenges them and their false god to prove once and for all who is God, Baal or Yahweh. And so they'll each prepare an ox to be offered up, but they won't light a fire underneath it because they're going to pray to each of their gods. And the God who answers with fire is the one true God. A simple contest. And the prophets of Baal agree to it, which I think is amazing. And they spend the rest of their day pleading with Baal to answer. They get all worked up into a frenzy. They end up cutting themselves and letting blood spill out all over the place, leaping around, screaming, Baal, Baal, answer us, send fire, working themselves up into an exhausted stupor. And Elijah mocks them. He mocks them. And he, he tells them, why don't you yell a little louder? Maybe you're not being loud enough. Or maybe Baal went on a journey and he can't, be, he can't hear you. Or, or maybe Baal's in the bathroom and he can't be bothered. I love that one. I think that's, <laughs> that's right up my alley. That sense of humor. Anyway, their, their vain raving finally ends in the evening. They've been doing this all day. In the evening with these sobering words, it says, there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Elijah then methodically rebuilds a ruined altar of 12 stones. An altar that had been used to offer sacrifices to the Lord in days gone by that had since been torn down. He prepares his ox and he lays out its pieces on the altar. Then he digs a trench around the altar and he orders that 12 pitchers of water be poured over the altar and also that that trench would be filled with water. And finally, Elijah steps forward and he prays. One little prayer. It didn't take a whole day of wailing and cutting. He just prays one prayer. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me. That this people may know that you, that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back again. Just like Malachi said, Elijah's going to do when he comes again. And then what happens? The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. That was a defining day for Israel. For after that display of power and glory, the people no longer had any hesitation at all in their answer to who was God. For all of them, it says, fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It was a pivotal day also for Israel. For after that fire came from heaven, Elijah ordered that the people seize all of those prophets of Baal, take them down to the Kishon Brook, and they would later be slain for all their wickedness. So God, in that single day, purged the land of these wicked prophets and priests who had so polluted his his land and his people. But one of the interesting things about this monumental event is what happens to Elijah afterwards. Because he gets threatened because of this. Because he killed all those priests and, and prophets. He gets threatened by the evil queen Jezebel. And he flees, believe it or not. After this monumental event, Elijah flees. And he's afraid and he's despairing. First he goes to the wilderness outside of Beersheba where he meets the angel of the Lord. And there he tells the angel of the Lord, it's enough now, O Lord. 
It's enough. Take my life, he begs, for I'm not better than my father's. The angel of the Lord doesn't grant his wish. He doesn't take his life. And instead, the angel of the Lord feeds him, prepares a meal for him, and he comforts him. And then he sends him on a journey, a 40-day fasting journey. And do you know where he sends him to? None other than Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Isn't that cool? Another reason why Malachi mentioned Horeb in the previous verse. The law was given to Moses and the people at Horeb, and solace and restoration were given to Elijah the prophet on Horeb. And while he was on that mountain, the mountain of God, Elijah, he sees a similar scene to that scene witnessed by the Israelites of the Exodus. The Lord passes by, and before the Lord, rocks split, and a, and a rushing wind breaks them apart. And there's a rumbling and an earthquake that occurs. And then there's fire from heaven. And finally, after Elijah sees all these things, he feels a gentle blowing breeze. God didn't speak to Elijah in awesome thunderings as he had done at the Exodus, but rather in a gentle blowing breeze. And it was there before the Lord that Elijah poured out his heart saying, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant and they've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword and only I am left and they seek my life to take it away. He gives that complaint twice to God in 1 Kings 19, 10 and 14. But God sends him from there to do something else, to anoint a new king of Aram and to anoint a new king of Israel and to anoint a new prophet, Elisha, to take Elijah's Elijah's place as one of his final assignments from the Lord. After Mount Carmel and after Mount Horeb, Elijah was finished. He says, it is enough, Lord. Take my life. But God had other plans for him. Rather than taking his life as Elijah had requested, God esteemed Elijah so much that he granted that he should be one of only two people thus far who have ever lived that were spared death. Just Enoch and Elijah, they're the only two. So this was the Elijah of the Old Testament. And it's fitting that we leave Elijah here following Mount Carmel and following Mount Horeb and we now consider... The question, what was the importance of Elijah to those in the days of the New Testament? And what better place to encounter him again than on another important mountain in Scripture? The mountain of transfiguration. Not with Ahab, not with the people, not with the prophets of Baal, but here again on the earth, here again on the earth with Moses and Jesus and the three disciples who went with him. Matthew 17 gives us this account. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. 
And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So yet again, though not on Horeb, the next appearance of Elijah is with Moses and Jesus in another Horeb-like experience, complete with the audible voice of God speaking to them and a great cloud of God's glory engulfing them. Do we ever think of these connections with the Old Testament when we read these accounts of the transfiguration? I just, I just love all of these allusions, allusions to the Old Testament where they're embedded so much in the New. They're just all over the place. Do you see Horeb here on the Mount of Transfiguration? The Jews in Jesus' day apparently were all abuzz about Elijah because Elijah's mentioned 29 times in the New Testament, which is way more than he's in the, the Old Testament. I think that's pretty interesting. And the reason, I believe, that he features so prominently in Jesus and the New Testament writer's day is because of this reemergence of Elijah back here in Malachi, back in that prophecy in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4. Recall, recall the question that Jesus asked his disciples when Peter made his good confession that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus had asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And how did they reply? They said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah or the prophet. And then Peter answered and said, and then Jesus asked them and said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter chimed in and said, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Why would they ask that? They asked that because they knew connected with the coming of the Messiah was Elijah's return. And so they expected that. And so some people thought Jesus might be Elijah. The Jews expected a literal fulfillment of this prophecy. They expected Elijah, the actual Elijah, the Tishbite prophet, the, that guy to return and do exactly what Malachi said he would do, restore. And you know what? The Jews actually still expect this today. Today, during the Passover, an empty place is set at the table each year in the homes of Orthodox Jews throughout the world. They do this as a tradition at the Passover so that they will be ready if Elijah would happen to appear during that feast. But let me ask is the, is this question. Is this expectation correct? Is it, is it correct to interpret Malachi's prophecy literally? That Elijah will come. And I believe that we are. We are to interpret it literally. We can't get around this question without talking a little bit about John the Baptist, though. Because I believe John the Baptist presents a near fulfillment, but not a final fulfillment of this prophecy. We're told, follow me here, because this gets a little bit technical. We're told in Matthew 3 and in Luke 3 that John was the fulfillment of the preparing messenger prophecy given back in Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 43. This means that John the Baptist was the Elijah who was to be sent from Malachi chapter 4.5. And it's also clear from these passages in Matthew and Luke that John himself understood himself to be the fulfillment of these prophecies. He knew it. And we're told in Luke chapter 1, when John's birth was announced, that he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, just like, it, just like hearkening back to Malachi. 
Further, Jesus himself says later on in Matthew 17, where we just read, right after the transfiguration, that Elijah had already come and the people did not recognize him and they did to him whatever they wanted. And you know who he was talking about just then? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Jesus also stated in Matthew 11.10 that John the Baptist was the direct fulfillment of Malachi 3.1, the preparing messenger. So it's clear. John the Baptist was a fulfillment of this prophecy. But are we to believe that there is yet another fulfillment of this prophecy to come in the future? And if so, on what basis would we believe such a thing? And the answer, again, I believe is yes. We do look for a future fulfillment. And our basis for believing so is pretty clear in Scripture. Let me lay this out for you. If you go to John chapter 1, verse 21, priests and Levites from Jerusalem were sent to John the Baptist to find out exactly who he was. And they asked him directly if he was Elijah. Are you Elijah? They asked him. And John's answer was a clear no. I'm not Elijah. Now, as stated earlier, John knew he was the fulfillment of the prophecy of the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And if he knew that, if that's the case, then how could he know that and yet deny that he was Elijah? Well, some say perhaps he was just denying that he was a literal Elijah, that the correct interpretation was a, 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 for a spiritual Elijah, in which case he wasn't denying that, but he was just denying that he's the literal Elijah. And I don't find that sufficient. I think better is that he knew that there was yet a future fulfillment that was to be expected right after, or that was, that was to be expected, that his ministry was not fulfilling. John knew this. Further, in support that we should expect a, a future fulfillment, Jesus himself indicated after the transfiguration that a future fulfillment is to be expected. The disciples were puzzled after they saw Moses and Elijah. And they were puzzled by this prophecy in Malachi. They say, why do the, why do the scribes, they ask, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? If you're here, Jesus, I thought Elijah had to come first. Why, why are you here first? And Jesus answers his disciples, and he says, Elijah is coming, and he will restore all things. Now, you have to know, Jesus made this statement about his future coming after John the Baptist was already dead. Thus, it's best to understand this Malachi 4-5 prophecy as having a near fulfillment in John the Baptist and a further fulfillment before Jesus' second coming to judge. And indeed, in Malachi's prophecy, it indicates that Elijah the prophet will come when? Before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Jesus' first coming, which John prepared the way for, did not end with the great and terrible day of the Lord. Further, many, many church fathers, early church fathers, believed in a literal future fulfillment. This is not definitive in the argument, but I think it's interesting. E.B. Pusey, in his commentary on Malachi, goes into great length extensively quoting the early Christian writings on this, and he compiles a list of quotations confirming their belief in a future literal fulfillment of Elijah's return. He quotes people like Justin Martyr and Tertullian, Origen, Hippolytus, Hilary the Deacon, Gregory of Nyssa, St. Ambrose, Chrysostom, Augustine, and many others 
They all believed that a future literal fulfillment was to be expected. And taking the Malachi prophecy and the teaching of the New Testament at face value, it's very reasonable to expect that Elijah will come, just as Jesus and Malachi told us. Finally, the case for the future fulfillment of Elijah's turn, return is only made stronger when we consider the ministry of the two witnesses predicted in the book of Revelation 11. If you get a chance, go read Revelation 11 this afternoon, okay? Verses 3 to 13 describes the ministry of the two witnesses. And I have a very strong opinion here. I think it's well-founded, but it's a very strong opinion that the two witnesses of Revelation 11 are none other than Moses and Elijah. Come again to give testimony to the Word of God and give final warning before Christ returns. If you go into that passage in Revelation 11, just look at the miracles that they do. Shutting up the heavens so no rain comes. Hello, that's Elijah, right? Turning water to blood. Hello, that's Moses. Striking the earth with every plague. Moses again. Sending fire that devours anyone who would harm them. Hello, Elijah again. Have you guys read... 2 Kings chapter 1 this afternoon. Do that this afternoon also. Read 2 Kings chapter 1. Elijah kills a bunch of people sending fire out to kill them. It's, it's an interesting little passage of Scripture. It's kind of, it's kind of funny when you watch, when you watch um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail right before reading that passage because there's that wizard that shoots fire. Like, <laughs> Anyway, sorry. That wasn't in my notes. My bad. I deviated. So anyway... Where was I? So, I think the case for, for their identity being Moses and Elijah is only stronger when you consider how they're both mentioned here in Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. And they're also both brought back together on that mountain of transfiguration with Jesus. And I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I'm 99.9% sure one of them's Elijah. I'm about 95% sure the other one's Moses. But I think there's good reasons to suspect that they are the two witnesses that Revelations predicts will come in the future. (sighs) All right. That was information overload, wasn't it, Eric? I know. All very interesting information, but how do these verses, or maybe it's very boring information for some of you, but how do these verses bear upon us today? We're at the, the end here. The fourth question, how do these verses bear on us today? How does Elijah bear upon us today. Well, first of all, I, I believe that the anticipation of a future fulfillment of this prophecy ought to fill us with wondering and watching eyes as we see history unfold before us. But that's, that's still the future, right? How does it bear upon us today? And I, I believe there's more that bears upon us today. And very personally, as I, I thought through this, how does this apply to us today? I, I took a very personal, introspective look at how does this bear upon me today and, and my pastoral ministry here. And I'm, I'm convinced that my pastoral ministry ought to have an Elijah-like quality to it. And I think all pastoral ministries ought to have an Elijah-like quality to them, whether it's John preaching or John preaching or Eddie preaching or, or any pastor preaching in a church, there ought to be an Elijah-like quality to what they say. Every sermon 
ought to be delivered with the same end in mind that Elijah had on Mount Carmel. Remember what he said there? Every sermon ought to have as an end in mind. We want to cause people to stop hesitating and make a choice. Make a choice between what this world offers and what Jesus offers. And let that hesitation stop. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? The ministry of a pastor ought to be one that that turns the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. As it says in Luke 1, I pray that God would grant us that spirit here at Grace. That when we stand up to speak, that would be with the reason and the purpose to cause the hesitation to cease. And finally, a pastoral ministry ought to have an Elijah-like quality in this regard. We need to embrace the discomfort that Elijah caused to so many people in his day. You know, Elijah led a great revival, but a big chunk of his life was spent fleeing on the run because he was so unpopular. His message was not welcomed and well-received. We got to get comfortable with that. And this one may be tough for us to hear, but there are many who will recoil at a truly biblical message and a, a biblically based indictment of our culture and our world. And as a pastor, I have to get used to that and not shy away because the environment I find myself in is hostile to the Christian message. And you, as God's people, need to be ready for the same thing. And thinking of ways that you can acquaint more and more of those around you with the things that are, t- are taught here in this church. Who can I invite? Who can I send this message to that needs to hear it? Who can I talk with about the things that I've learned? We have to become more comfortable with the discomfort that an Elijah-like ministry brings. Let me conclude our time together. The final imperative, the final promise, and there's also a final warning, isn't there? That last word in Malachi is curse. Curse. And I brought up this book to you earlier because I I feel we as a culture are living on the precipice of a cursed land. Last week I mentioned the degradation of our culture and how it's so tied to our culture's insistence that God's word be left out of the public discourse and that God's word be relegated just to your pews, just to your sanctuaries, just to your churches. Leave it out of the public square. That prolonged elimination of God's word in a culture will destroy a culture. It will bring a curse, a ban on the land. You know, this week, later on, Abe and I are going to go on a little trip. Abe's turning 13 here in September. And when my boys 
and my daughter eventually, when they, they turn 13, I've done this with Caleb and Gideon, I, I take them on a little trip just with dad and them. And I, I take them on a trip so they can, in some ways, appreciate their history and also so I can give them a little charge for the future and to share some words just one-on-one and time one-on-one together. Well, Abe and I are going to do that this week. And we're going to go down to Kentucky. First, we're going to do a little caving down at Mammoth Cave and camp a couple days, and then we're going to go to my mamma and papa's old farm. Now, I was born in Cincinnati, but my mom and dad were born and, and raised in the, the bramble and the briar of the, of the bluegrass state down in Kentucky. So Kentucky feels like a second home to me. And it's in large part because of that farm. I think back to times as a child on that farm where we would gather around a table and we would eat the food that was grown in the ground on that farm. The potatoes and green beans and corn at every meal except breakfast. Lunch and dinner, potatoes, corn, green beans. Tomatoes, beets, all sorts of different things. Sometimes we would actually kill a chicken that was raised on that farm and eat that chicken. I remember watching my mom clean and gut a chicken. It was gross. But great, all at the same time, tasting. Anyway, as a kid, I remember being there with my cousins, and I remember being there with my sister. And I remember every Sunday, I hated it, I couldn't stand it, we'd get up and go to church. Man, this is so boring. But it was a big part of what we did every time we went down there. But when we would get back from church, we'd have all sorts of time in the afternoon to play on that farm. And me and my cousins and my sister would do that. And we would often look behind us over our shoulders at the porch. It was a good porch. Little farmhouse with AstroTurf green flooring on the porch. It was always that way. And Mama and Papa were there Mom and dad were there. My aunts and uncles were there. It was a vision of a good life. Do the generations coming up today have a vision for a good life anymore? They don't. We threw it out when we threw prayer out of school. We threw it out when we threw the Bible out of the public discourse. We threw it out when we said, God, get out. And when we threw all that out, we threw out a vision for a good life. The Old Testament begins with creation. And it ends with curse. In the beginning, God created. And at the end, lest I come and smite with a curse. What a sad ending. The Old Testament begins with creation. 
And it ends with curse because there was no Christ to save them. But look with me. Look with me. Behold, as the prophets would say, behold, turn the page, and what do we find? We find another Genesis in the genealogy of Jesus, don't we? Turn the page, and we find Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And when we consider the ministries of Moses and Elijah, we must remember the last thing that they were told on that mountain of transfiguration by that heavenly voice. Yet again, Moses, when he heard that voice the first time, the law was given. Elijah, when he first heard that voice, was given the task of anointing new leaders. The final thing that they were given to do on that mountain by that voice was to listen to Jesus. Because more pleasing to God than either Moses or Elijah was the beloved son. And his is the voice which commands our highest allegiance and attention. And because of this beloved son, just consider how our New Testament ends. It ends with the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. If you hear his voice today, don't harden your heart against him. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? Listen to him. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your rich promises. Thank you, God, for the promises you fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus and for the promises you will fulfill in the second coming of Jesus. Father, we look forward to those days. And we think about the days that we live in now, God. And many of us cry like Elijah cried there on Mount Horeb. Father, I've been zealous for you, but all the people around me have torn down your altars and they've ignored your word. Father, we sound like Elijah sometimes when we pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you give this church a ministry like Elijah's, calling people back to the word, calling people back to repentance, restoring people's hearts. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Rise for the benediction. In Revelation eleven fifteen, it says, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. Depart with full assurance that that day will come. Depart with hearts restored to your heavenly Father and be in peace. Amen.